Hello everyone, I welcome you to the First Baptist Church of Westfield Sunday service. If you would, please open up your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 10. And before we continue too much further, uh, just as a recap, so far in chapter 10, or um, even in chapter 9, we have seen how God is going to judge the people because of a few different things, their arrogance, their pride, um, the fact that their leaders are leading them further into darkness, the fact that there's oppression and violence, um, and all these things lead to God being angry with his people because the law states that they should not be acting this way, that they should be acting in a way which pleases God, which is injustice and righteousness and ultimately goodness. But we see the people instead doing other things, trusting in their own might, their own reason, and trusting in other powers rather than God. And so because of that, we have seen already in Isaiah how uh, Judah was going to trust in Assyria in order to save them from a threat. And now we're going to see, okay, well, what, what happens with Assyria in chapter 10? So we have, starting with verse 5 and going through verse 11. Woe to Assyria, the rod of my anger, the staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation I send him, and against the people of my wrath I command him to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. But he does not so intend... And his heart does not so think, but it is in his heart to destroy and to cut off nations not a few. For he says, are not my commanders all kings? Is not Kauno like Carchemish? Is not Hamath like Arpad? Is not Samaria like Damascus? As my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols, whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images. So far in Isaiah, we have seen how Assyria is not to be trusted. Indeed, Isaiah has placed a dichotomy before the king to trust in God or to trust in the major power of Assyria. Despite God being a far greater power than Assyria, the king decided to place his trust in Assyria and essentially began the people's doom. But still, even with all of this, what is Assyria in the end? Knowing God, that becomes the question. Is Assyria in its own power and might coming against the people? Is it just Assyria being Assyria? Is there more to the story than this? Thus, Isaiah pronounces a woe, interestingly enough, against Assyria. What makes it interesting is the way Assyria is then described. The rod of my anger and their staff is God's fury. Right away we see something. Assyria is coming against the people, not on their own, but as God's chosen instrument of judgment. We see this take shape as God sends Assyria against a godless nation. Assyria will spoil, plunder, and destroy the people. But again, that is the focus. While Assyria will certainly do these things, it is God who sends Assyria. It is for a particular purpose Assyria is sent in order to judge a godless people. Yet the prophet considers this from the perspective of Assyria. Assyria does not consider what, is, what it does from any other level than the base perspective. Assyria doesn't consider its actions as being utilized by God to judge a godless people. There is no intention of Assyria to defend God in his ways. Instead, the purpose is to seek destruction itself. It seeks to oppress and to overwhelm. This is seen in the way Isaiah dis, uh, depicts Assyria in thought. 
There are two interpretations for verse 8. The first is that the commanders of Assyria are Assyrians and in comparison to weaker kingdoms aren't even Assyrian commanders kings in comparison. The second perspective looks at it from the conquered kings who have become commanders as such they're vassals of Assyria. As such the king of other nations are then called upon to support the campaign of the Assyrian kings. Regardless, we see the self-esteem that Assyria has for itself. It considers all of its grand campaigns against other kingdoms and the leadership and thinks to itself, what else? Indeed, the cities represent those which have been conquered. As such, what is it for Assyria to continue south and invade the kingdoms of Israel and Judah? It would be a minor task in light of everything else that they have conquered. As such, we see the arrogance in Assyrian understanding. They think they can just go ahead and steamroll people on their own. Thus, Assyria recognizes from a religious perspective it has reached into all these idolatrous lands and has won. Jerusalem and Samaria were Hebrew nations. And while they did often flirt with idolatry, they were also vastly different in scope compared to their idolatrous neighbors. Hence, these other kingdoms were wrought with idols, whereas Israel and Judah wouldn't nearly have as many. Yet, even if they do have fewer idols, they too will come under Assyrian control. As such, the Assyrians show their strength. They are not afraid of the Hebrew nations, fully believing that they will crush them just as they have crushed all the others before them. Now we come to verses 12 through 14. When the Lord had, has finished all his work on Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. For he says, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom, for I have understanding. I remove the boundaries of people and plunder their treasures. Like a bull I bring down those who sit on thrones. My hand has found like a nest the wealth of the peoples, and as one gathers eggs that have been forsaken, so I have gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved a wing or opened the mouth or chirped. With verse 12, we have a note. We notice again that it was God who called Assyria for his judgment. It wasn't Assyria alone who had victory in the end. It was God's victory through Assyria. Yet Assyria had been arrogant and proud in their victories. They see themselves as being on par with God. We remember another king in Babylon who had the same kind of look. As such, God will punish those whom he used to punish his people. Isaiah does not leave us to guess at the arrogant words, but instead offers us an insight into the mind of the Assyrians. We see how the king of Assyria believes it was his own strength, his own wisdom and understanding, which has led to his success in conquests. He has been able to overcome enemies and in doing so remove boundaries that were once intact. Their treasures have been taken by the Assyrians, making them rich. Like a bull, he overwhelms those kings he has crushed. Verse 14 really establishes the mind of the Assyrian king. By describing his success in natural terms, we can easily understand his viewpoint. It was easy as snatching eggs when the mother bird had left. Despite his rolling armies, no other army was able to overcome his own. Indeed, it was like steamrolling over a flower bed. There was not much opposition against the king. Now we'll come to verse 15, and that'll be the last of our verses for today. Shall the axe boast over him who hews with it, or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? 
as if a rod should wield him who lifts it, or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. It's this verse which, in a way, is the linchpin to the whole discussion. Isaiah has already stated that Assyria is being brought forth by God in order for judgment. Therefore, Assyria is no different than any other nation which is under God's sovereignty. As such, for Assyria to be taking credit shows their tremendous pride in the situation. The king of Assyria claims that it is his strength, his wisdom, and understanding alone which has led to his major victories. Yet, in doing this, it is no different than the axe and saw believing it is greater than that which moves them, or like a rod and staff believing that they are the ones in control. No, they are merely instruments of the person, or in this case, Assyria is only an instrument of God himself, who gives them power to begin with. As such, the proper response, even from Assyria, would have been to give glory to God for the victories and conquests, and then to follow him and regarding people as in his image. Instead, we see them acting puffed up. It is this which reminds us of the woe from the beginning of this, these verses. Why is it a woe? Because of their pride and their thinking that they are masters when really they are the instruments. And this also leads to them how they behaved. Many times when the Assyrians conquered another region, it really left those people angry and embittered at the Assyrians because of the way they treated those whom they conquered. So it all comes back around. Their immorality, their pride, all these things are problematic. So, the main point of these verses are to show how God would utilize Assyria in order to punish a godless people. In the process, however, Assyria is arrogant, believing that all their success comes from their own strength, wisdom, and understanding. Isaiah then gives us the proper perspective, which is that it is not Assyria's might which has brought them success, but God who is the real master and sovereign. So Isaiah today informs us of an important reality which has been relevant to us since Genesis. What is that reality? The fact that God has created humanity to bear his image, and in bearing his image, he has bestowed upon us personhood, which means that we have freedom of will. We have seen the repercussions of this freedom of will since Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve chose to eat the forbidden fruit. Yet, we have also seen something else, and that is that God himself also has a will. This makes sense since God has personhood. We, he, we see his will come into being as he is the first cause of the universe, and as he has created humanity to bear his image. Indeed, with the flood, the choosing of Abraham, we have seen God's will in this world over and over and over again. But that leaves a significant problem for us to understand, and that is our will and God's will, and how does it all fit together? This is one of the oldest and hardest questions which we could grasp. The repercussions of where one lands on this leads to many theological perspectives. Does God have an ultimate plan? Can that plan truly come to fruition? Is it possible that he has no plan, but is fully reliant upon us and our will? Very often it leads to two diametrical opposites. The first are those who believe we are fully determined by God's will. In this, they believe nothing we will, we will really has consequence because in the end, God has already ordained everything to happen. 
The problem with this view is that it denies human will, something which the scriptures and even everyday experience seems to deny. For example, I certainly seem capable of having a will and I do have a will. For better or worse, I have chosen again this shirt today as an example I like to use. I have also made other choices on a daily basis like what I had for lunch or what I had for breakfast. Yet this leads to the opposite side of the spectrum, in which because we have freedom of the will, God doesn't actually have a plan at all. In this sense, our freedom of will is so powerful that God doesn't even know what will happen in the future because we haven't made our choices yet. In this sense, our freedom of will goes against God's freedom to the point where God's attributes are diminished. But this too leads to obvious problems. Um, How could Isaiah proclaim, even in this passage, a warning against Assyria if God doesn't know what will happen in the future? If human will is so strong, then how could God even send his son to accomplish redemption if the people around him could have undone God's plan and purpose at any point? So again, we have these two views which tend to cause individuals to go too far in their opposite directions. This leaves us with a question of, is there some kind of middle ground which allows God to be God and willfully bring about his plans and decrees while at the same time allowing us personal will? The answer from the scriptures seemed to be a yes. Indeed, the biblical understanding seems to be one of a middle knowledge where God knows all things. He knows what is in reality, but he also knows what is not in reality. He knows not only what did happen, but what could have happened. He knows what is happening right now, but he also knows what could be happening. He knows what will happen and knows what could happen. He knows each of us so intimately that he knows our choices before we do. The scripture seems to paint this picture of God's vast knowledge and ultimately how he can both know all these things and guide all these things along. Why? Because he is able to put people in their places in history for a reason, knowing their choices every day will have consequences. He knows where to place us in history to further his glory. Our freedom of will does not subvert God, but ultimately he uses even our freedom of will for his own design and purpose. Some will say that seems awfully deterministic, but is it really? If I know something you will do in the future, does that mean I willfully forced you to make the choices you make? If God knows us so intimately as to know what we will freely choose depending on the situations we are in, does that mean God makes those decisions for us? Of course not. We have the ability to choose to go a different course, and God knows them too but he also knows which choices we will actually make. So here we are in Isaiah, and we have this king of Assyria who is being used by God. God raised him up, put him in charge for a particular reason. He brought him up knowing that Israel would be in wickedness and knowing that judgment would need to fall on his people for their wickedness. He knows Assyria will conquer them for this reason. Yet, It is still God who chose to place the king of Assyria in charge. It is still God who had the plan and knew every other action that every other person would make in order to get that place, uh, to get to that place to begin with. He knows who to place and he knows where and when to place them. Does this mean God is only reliant on our will? No. 
He also wills himself and does things in this world which can change our direction and our will. Jesus, through his life, teaching, miracles, death, and resurrection, proves that God can enter into our world and do things which will cause our wills to be transformed. Indeed, salvation itself is something which is fully given to us by God's grace and is something which he wills, according to Romans 9. Yet, we want to realize exactly what Isaiah sees here. The king of Assyria has a will, true. God will use that will, true. However, that does not make Assyria any less culpable for their pride and arrogance in their decisions. Even if God could use us, it does not mean we are excused from our sinful inhibitions. We are still at fault because it is still our will. The choices we make are ours to make, and we have a responsibility with our freedom to seek out the greatest possible good. And we know what brings about the greatest possible good because we know God, who is God, and his precepts. Because we are like the king of Assyria, God will use us just as he used Assyria. He knows what we will choose, but it is still our choice to make in the moment. As such, we can and should continue to make the choices which lead to what is good rather than what is evil. We can further do this through the regenerative, to the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit who urges us into the truth of Christ and his redemption and teaches us all good things. So what should all of this lead us to? I think the best response to all of what the Bible is teaching us is humility. We do not know what will happen in the next 20 years. We do not even know what will happen in the next 20 seconds. God, however, knows everything that will happen to everyone for all time. And with all these different choices which are presented to us, he knows which choices we will make with our freedom of will and still manages to have sovereignty over it all. We have a hard enough time knowing ourselves, and yet God knows it all. It should cause within us a great urging to fall on our knees in praise and adulation, knowing that all the events and even our choices matter. That we and they are not nothings, but are something which God himself will use to further his glory. Despite our finiteness, God has decreed that we should matter, our choices should matter. How incredible a thought is that? It isn't only kings whose choices matter, but even our choices here and now. The choices you make will reverberate long after you are gone. Yet God knows it all and places us where we are for a particular purpose. The more one thinks about it, the more one can't help but consider all the possibilities. What if by my choosing godliness today, my children choose it tomorrow? Which leads to others being blessed because of the choices I made. What if choosing to seek God in humility today, it leads to a thousand years from now, someone else doing the same? Only God knows the repercussions of all of our choices. Only he knows the grand scheme. But the possibilities are vast for each of us in our time and in our finiteness. So the best thing to do is know your God. Know that he is sovereign and know that he will use us for a particular reason. You are here for a particular reason. You may not be a king or a queen, but you have a purpose. Not because of status, but because you are here at all. Everything you do is just as important as the person to your left and to your right. God gives us the purpose, and that is why it is so important. Apart from God, none of it would matter. But because he exists, 
and guides all of history, we are able to find our purpose and it is wonderful to consider. So, will you consider the choices you make to be inconsequential? Will you continue to consider these things? Will you now begin to see why the scriptures urge us into obedience? Because it matters. Seek God then and know the repercussions of faithfulness which leads to godliness. Choose what is good, what is right, what is just, what is righteous, what is holy. And know that though the choices may be hard at times, it is not without purpose. Because our God is sovereign and every command he gives is for purpose and that purpose is his glory, which is goodness itself. Trust then in this God, knowing that he would never lead us astray. And I think that this is interesting when it comes to the gospel. Because we know that it is through the gospel that we find our ultimate purpose, our ultimate source of identity um, in the person of Jesus Christ. And it all begins with God who created the universe. He is the first cause. From him has come all that we see and all that we experience and all of reality. But last of all, what he created in his infinite wisdom and knowledge was humanity. To bear his image. And no matter what your race, your gender, in the end, you are made in the image of God. And because of that, you have personhood. And because of that, you are, have dignity. And you have sanctity and worth to life. And so do I. We have all these things. Every person, every human is created in God in this way to bear his image. And this is a wonderful and glorious thing which needs to be taught over and over and over again. Because we need to remember it especially in times like today in our world. But then the question happens. I mean, Assyria, the king of Assyria, he's creating the image of God too. And God even uses the king of Assyria for his purposes. But what do we also find? The king of Assyria and the Assyrians, they were led in darkness. They believed it was themselves. They were prideful. They were arrogant. They were like Adam and Eve believing that they could become like God through power and oppression and violence in the end. And the question is, how do we get into that state of mind? And the answer is because of sin. Because sin is so oppressive in and of itself, it causes us to continue to live in sin. And because of this, we see, as what we see in Isaiah today, how these great people, these great kings can become so easily corrupted. And how instead of honoring God, they take pride in themselves. And so that's the question. Is how can we end the oppression? How can we end the fact that we continue to sin? Because we see the ramifications of sin. Which is also the problem. And that's judgment. God is using Assyria to judge his people. True, but that doesn't leave Assyria any less culpable for their bad decisions in the process, which then leads them to judgment. It's a circle of judgment and judgment and judgment. So the question is, how do we break the cycle? Unfortunately, we can't. Because each one of us has sinned, according to the scriptures. Every single human being has been marred by brokenness that sin brings. Brokenness with our relationship with God, each other, the world, and even ourselves. We deserve judgment. So how can we escape it? 
Well, thanks be to God that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, who lived in time, space, history, and flesh, who lived, who died, and who rose again. Because through the person of Jesus Christ, we find redemption. The way that the judgment cycle ends is through Jesus. Because it's through Jesus, placing our faith in what he has accomplished in his life, death, and resurrection, frees us from that judgment. And as 1 John tells us, there's now no longer fear from God, but love. Why? Because of what Christ has done. And if we should place our faith in Christ, then we too can be changed. We can seek to be like Christ. We can seek to honor God. And all of our will, which continually went into darkness, can now go into light. And we can make the choice here and now to choose to follow after God. Whereas before we were, as it says in the scripture, slaves to sin, we can be slaves to righteousness. And now slavery, that's a harsh term, I know. But the truth is, is that our wills are corrupted. And it is like a bondage like that. And it's a darkness. But thanks be to God that he sent his light into the world to scatter the darkness. Jesus Christ. And it's all because of him. The weight of the bondage is off our backs if we believe in Jesus. And if we believe, then we will follow. And we will obey. And we will love. And we will seek justice and righteousness in this world. And where's it all leading? Well, for those who don't believe and for those who continue to fight against God, there's only judgment because there's no redemption apart from Jesus Christ. But also, we know that for those who do believe, there's an eternal kingdom where life is given for all time, for eternity, where we can live with our God in peace and love forevermore. So we rejoice in the coming of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in the sovereignty of God, which is so vast and wonderful that he had a plan to save us and that he did save us. And we rejoice in the fact that our God is so sovereign as to guide us and lead us and to regenerate us for his glory. Let us forever praise his name and let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for what you have accomplished through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the words of Isaiah who remind us that you are active in the world, that you are not just out there, but you care about what happens around us and in time and space. And so, Lord, we rejoice over this. We rejoice that you really do know what's going to happen. And because of that, we can put our faith in you, knowing that you know what is good. And Lord, As people who seek to be obedient to you, we know that obedience means what you say it means, which is that ultimately blessings will come upon the world. So Lord, we ask that you would continue to transform our hearts, that your spirit would guide us into goodness, and that we would seek righteousness and justice, because you are a God who builds your kingdom on these things. And Lord, let us not boast in ourselves as the Assyrians did. But instead, let us boast only in you and in your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I thank you all for joining me this Sunday, and I pray that you all have a wonderful week in the Lord.
God bless everyone. Take care.